the name of Christ. My name is Ben Allen, one of the pastors here at this church. As we gather this morning, it's uh, a privilege to be together with the body of Christ. Um, if you're visiting with us this morning, we would love the opportunity to get to know you. Perhaps you can stay afterwards for a few minutes that we can greet you in the name of Christ, get to know you, and see how we can pray for you. We would love that opportunity, and uh, would love you make yourself available for that. One quick announcement. Uh, tonight we have a prayer meeting at 5.30 in the blue room downstairs, and a time to listen to God's word and just be together as church. So we would invite you all to be part of that with us. I'd like to call you to worship now by reading from Psalm 27, in verse, starting in verse 4. As we meditate together on what it means to be the church and our intents and the motives and desires of our heart, I want to call our attention to what the psalmist says in Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. This idea of the house of God, where we gaze upon God and the beauty of the Lord. This concept in, an old, in, in old, the mind of an old covenant Jew would have been... Um, very, very concretely connected to being in the temple, especially after the temple was constructed in Solomon's day. The, the Jewish person would have thought that being in the house of God was being in a particularly special presence of God and would have connected that to particular blessings, would have been connected to the, a place of sanctuary from enemies, a place where God is and no, no evil can befall you in that place. As a New Covenant Christian, the house of God is not these four walls. It's not this building. It's not brick and mortar. The house of God is the people of God. In the book of Revelation, chapter 21, we have a picture. John has a vision of heaven, of the city of Jerusalem coming down. And he says, the Lord will dwell with men and they will be his God. And he will, he will be their God and they will be his people. He will make his dwelling place with his people. The house of God is his people. It's our hearts. The Holy Spirit, we have a promise that the Spirit of God resides in our hearts. And when God's people collectively gather to worship him, we have particular promises that we should lay hold of. And those promises should help us, particularly if we feel troubled by sin or troubled by temptation. Maybe some of us have fallen this week. Maybe some of us feel like we're being pressed Maybe some of us are, are doubting or wondering, am I really saved? Am I really safe in Christ? Is it sufficient? Brothers and sisters, in Christ we have no condemnation. And it is a blessing. When we are with one another, 
It is a confirmation, and it should be a confirmation that is, we are safe in God, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. May that color our, our worship this morning, and may we do, as the psalmist says at the end of verse 6, I will sing and make melody to the Lord. It should color our worship, and it should motivate us. Our brother Alex will come and lead us in time of prayer. Let's go to God in prayer together. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning aware of sin, ashamed of sin, and acknowledging our sin, and by your help turning away from our sin. We recognize that even as your people, we are so easily ensnared by sin and so frequently fall into sin. And it's impossible to come into your presence, into the brilliance and splendor of your holiness, and to not recognize this immense distance that exists between us and between you. And yet, Lord, you, through Christ, give to us the assurance of forgiveness and pardon, such that even you, God, can be considered just in relating to sinners like us, in calling us sons and daughters, in calling us your special people. We are uh, those who have benefited from privilege upon privilege at the hands of your grace, that you would count us your children, and that you would desire to draw us near even in this hour of worship now. So we come to you as those who have been forgiven, now coming to you in worship, thanking you, blessing you, praising you for what you have accomplished through your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray that the thought of your love and the thought of your grace and the thought of your perfect justice and mercy coming together in Christ would bless us this morning and fill us with joy even as we worship you. Lord, we thank you that uh, what Ben said is exactly right, that in Christ there is no condemnation, and that anyone here who stands in Christ, stands in His grace, uh, covered by His blood, has no need to fear this morning in the presence of God. Please, Lord, cause us to come boldly, cause us to come with zeal, cause us to come with joy as we worship you in this hour now. We thank you that all of your promises in Christ are true. And we thank you that one of your promises is that when your people gather together, you promise to be there with them and to be near to them. We come expecting fully for you to fulfill that promise with us this morning. We know that you will. We thank you that it is so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you at this time to stand as we sing, all creatures of our God and King.
Son and praise the Spirit three in one. Oh, praise Him. Oh, praise Him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.
be seated. The Apostle Paul tells us that we have this treasure in jars of clay. And one of the responsibility of um, having this treasure, this amazing treasure, is to pass on the faith that is once delivered to the saints. And one way to pass on this faith is to confess the ancient creeds. There's a lot that we can say about Christianity, but no less than what uh, these ancient creeds have uh, written. So if you turn to your bulletin, and let's recite the Apostle Creeds together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You have a copy of God's Word. Um, please turn to John chapter 9, which uh, is going to be the passage for this morning's sermon. And I'll read uh, from verses 1 to 34. And this, in this chapter, John actually described one of the seven signs or miracles so that we may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing we may have life in His name. John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sand. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? 
and there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you will not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as, of, as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. As the men come forward to take the offering, we'll sing the song, Jesus, I Come. We'll remain seated for the first few verses. Sing, Out of My Bondage. Out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come into thy freedom, gladness and life, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of my sickness, into thy hell, out of i 
turn again in your Bibles to the Gospel of John in chapter 9, the passage that was read out just a moment ago. And we want to finish reading John 9, so we'll read together verses 35 through 41. John chapter 9, verses 35 through 41. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. This is the man born blind. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Let's pray together once more. Our Father, we pray that in this hour now, what we know not you would teach us, what we have not, you would give us, and what we are not, you would make us by the power of your Spirit. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. John chapter 9 is a very well-known and famous chapter in the Bible, the account of a man born blind who is miraculously given his sight by the Lord Jesus, and it plays a very important part in the overall narrative of John's gospel. 
uh, we have often commented on the purpose statement of John's gospel, which is recorded for us in John 20, verse 31. Uh, There, John writes that these things have been written or these signs have been recorded that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, If you read John's gospel in its entirety, you learn there are seven signs that are recorded there by uh, John. And one of them, the sixth of those signs, is what we have before us today in John chapter 9, the healing of this man who was born blind. And this is included in John's account, in John's narrative, uh, for the purpose of eliciting our faith in the Lord Jesus, not just that we would believe that He is the Christ, that is, that He is the Messiah and a Savior for sinners, but that we would believe He is God Himself, the the Son of God, uh, that He Himself partakes of the divine nature, that He is the Christ, God's own Son. Uh, But I do think John 9 uh, has a larger purpose to serve even in the immediate context. There's a reason why I think the Apostle John uh, records this particular miracle uh, in between John chapter 8, which we have considered over the last few weeks, and John 10, which we'll consider in the weeks ahead. Uh, First, with respect to John 8, You might remember, if you've been with us in this series, that the pivotal verse in John 8 is contained in verse 12, where Jesus makes this tremendous statement of self-identity. He says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that statement, more or less, is expounded through Jesus' dialogue with the Jews in John chapter 8. It's no coincidence now that we have a man who's born blind from birth, meaning he has always lived in darkness. And what happens when Jesus, the light of the world, encounters this man? And what effect will that have on him? That's part of the reason why John 9 appears where it does in John's gospel. But then, as we just read a moment ago, John 9 ends with this sort of indictment of the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the day in that Jewish context. Jesus accuses them of actually being those who are blind. Well, John 10, you may know, goes on to talk about how Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the shepherd of the flock, and He's placed in contrast with those thieves and those false shepherds, uh, those wolves who really harm the flock and are not truly Uh, sent from God. He's contrasting himself as the good shepherd with the religious leaders of the day. So, John 9's ending flows very much into the point Jesus wants to establish in John 10. I think that's why this account is positioned here. Uh, Now, what I want to do this morning is simply go verse by verse through the entire narrative and um, draw out various points of application for us as believers looking on at this sign uh, that Jesus brought about in John chapter 9. Now, it's 41 verses, chapter 9 of John's gospel. Uh, So, what we'll do is we'll frame the discussion uh, around five scenes or five plot movements so we could kind of hang our hats on uh, those various uh, headings uh, by which we could summarize the narrative. So, here's the first scene, the first plot movement as we go through John chapter 9 together. First of all, Jesus teaches His disciples about suffering. Jesus teaches His disciples about suffering. Look on with me at John 9, verses 1 through 4, if you would. As He, Jesus, passed by, He saw a man blind from birth. And His disciples asked Him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or His parents, that He was born blind? 
Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. The passage starts with a word from the disciples. They see this man born blind as they're passing by, and they think, hey, here's a good theological question to ask the master. Uh, here's, here's a good question we could bring to his attention and get some sort of guidance and clarity from him. And they, the question starts with this assumption. This man is blind. There's this suffering in his life. There's an affliction on this man. And the question is, well, surely this is the result of someone's sin. So, so Master, tell us, is it the result of this man's original sin, the sin that he was born into? Or is this the result of his parents' sin? How should we think about the relationship between sin and suffering? That's more or less the question the disciples posed to Jesus. And in response to this question, Jesus communicates two very important principles about suffering. Now, this is not the biggest point in the text, but I, I don't think we can just pass by this and not uh, uh, gather the fruit from these words that Jesus says. So, two very important lessons from Jesus about suffering that I think we can learn here. First of all, Jesus seeks to communicate to, to His disciples that present suffering, present suffering, present affliction, often does not correlate with past sin. Present suffering in the life of a person often does not correlate with past sin. Now, obviously, sometimes we recognize suffering can correlate with past sin. Uh, even if you're not a Christian, you would probably acknowledge that. So, if you steal a uh, plasma screen TV from Best Buy and then you get caught, you're going to have to pay a fine or do community service or go to jail, whatever. There's going to be some suffering inflicted upon you that is directly correlated to the sinful action of stealing a TV from Best Buy. And there are even situations that are less obvious than that like an instance in which God might bring some sort of suffering or reproach upon a Christian as a result of a hidden pattern of sin or something like that. That sometimes happens, and it's often hard to discern. Sometimes the Lord uses suffering to expose sin in the life of a believer. That does actually happen at times. It's not always clear, though, that that's what's taking place. But Jesus wants His disciples here in this passage to know that it is inappropriate to assume de facto that if someone is suffering, it is the result of personal sin. To see this blind beggar and to conclude this must be some reproach sent upon him by God for either his sin or his parents' sins, Jesus says, that's an inappropriate assumption to make. We, we do not have the vantage point of God whereby we can draw that conclusion. I think there's a lesson for us to learn in that. Uh, we should not assume when we see suffering or hardship or affliction in the life of a particular believer that God's purpose there is to chastise them because of their sin or someone else's. God uses suffering for all kinds of things in the lives of believers. And you could imagine uh, for this blind beggar uh, uh, what, what sort of uh, affliction was aggravated by the suggestion that the condition he's in must have been because he sinned. We can do this, can't we? Uh, we could so easily add to the reproach or the affliction or the suffering that a person feels if we say, you know what, you're there because you deserve to be there. The reason this is in your life, the reason this suffering is in your life is, must be because you sinned. 
must be because you did something wrong, and if you would just do right, you wouldn't be in this situation. It could so easily be like Job's friends, right? Job was not suffering uh, in connection with some sort of past sin. Uh, and In fact, he never really knows why he's suffering. He's never given an answer to that question, and yet his friends add to his reproach by suggesting, you must have done something wrong, Job. Uh, somehow you must deserve this. And that's what the disciples are doing in this situation. But Jesus wants to make clear this is not a result of sin. There are other things going on here. And that's the second lesson Jesus would teach us, I think, about suffering. And that is that God uses human suffering to advance His purposes. God uses human suffering to advance His purposes. Purpose is the issue, not cause. Purpose is the issue. In this case, it was God's purpose to give blindness to this man that in the process of time, He would miraculously heal him of his blindness, and thereby the works of God would be powerfully displayed in this man's life. Now, it doesn't always work that way. Our suffering doesn't always have the result of some big exclamation point moment, some great triumph of healing and deliverance. God's purposes are not always to bring healing from suffering. And what's more, He doesn't always show us what He's doing. Sometimes we can have an affliction in our lives and we just wonder, Lord, why is this here? Why have you given me this thing? Why am I going through this? He doesn't always tell us why. But it's then that we must believe by faith He's using this for His purposes. And I humbly submit myself to what it is He is doing by His hand. This is one of the hardest things, I think, for Christians to accept, that God brings suffering into our lives, and He uses it for His good purposes in our lives. And yet, I find the contrary to be unthinkable, and that is that God just has no control over the things that come into our lives, and if there's suffering in our lives, well, uh, that's not from Him. He's just not over that. He only brings good things. Well, I don't want to worship a God who's not sovereign, has no control over the circumstances of my life. It comforts me to know that everything, good or ill, that comes into my life as His child comes from the hands of a good God who is using everything for my good. We need to settle this in our minds, wrap our minds around this. There are limitless resources for help and encouragement and sanctification in the truth that God uses human suffering to advance His own purposes in our lives and in the world. And when I talk about human suffering, I'm not talking about like, well, God gave me the flu and I had to miss out on the golf tournament. I'm talking about the really big things. I'm talking about carrying a baby nine months and that baby arriving stillborn. I'm talking about the premature death of a most beloved parent upon whom you depended so much. I'm talking about a young person full of life and vigor and potential getting in a car accident and being paralyzed for 50 years, having to take food through a tube for the rest of his or her life. Talking about a man born blind from birth. Even these things God uses to advance His purposes. You young Christians, I encourage you, settle this now in your experience. God makes use of even the bad in my life to bring about good. There are terrible things that are going to happen to you in your life that you know nothing about right now. You need ballast. You need foundation. Well, it's here for you. Even your suffering can be used of God, will be used of God to bring about His ends and His 
good purposes. Well, obviously in our text, Jesus is anticipating what he's about to do for this man. Uh, What he does to this man's suffering is so great that it gets a whole chapter in the Bible by which Christians can be encouraged for thousands of years. So now let's go to the second plot movement. Jesus teaches a lesson about suffering, two lessons. Now the second scene, plot movement in the text. Jesus heals the man of his blindness. Jesus heals the man of his blindness. Verse 6, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This is um, a very unadorned presentation of the sixth of Jesus' signs in this gospel. Here Jesus, the light of the world, brings light into this man's darkness physically and opens his eyes miraculously. He does a physical sign, and it is a paradigm for us for what God does spiritually with the eyes of the heart of those whom He saves. He opens their eyes. He removes their blindness. This is what Jesus came into the world to do. All of the signs recorded in John's gospel, they point to deeper spiritual realities. And here, I think what's being communicated is just like a man uh, who is born blind has to have Jesus remove that blindness so that he can see, faith operates the same way. Faith is the eyes of the heart. And what God does in new birth and in salvation and in conversion is to remove spiritual blindness and to give His people eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ, that He is the Christ, that He is the Son of God. I believe that's what the sign is meant to teach us. But now the third plot movement, the third plot movement. The Pharisees interrogate the man born blind. The Pharisees now interrogate the man born blind. Jesus just sort of slips off the scene here, doesn't really have any interaction uh, with this man after he performs this sign. And immediately, this man is caught up by the crowds and by the Pharisees and is interrogated by the Pharisees themselves. Verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Immediately, these people who knew of this man begin to ask questions. The Jews who perhaps passed by him going into the temple day by day, they say, hey, I've seen you down at the temple before. You you were there begging because you were blind, but here, look, he sees. What, what happened? How did this come about? Now, notice it doesn't say in the narrative that his friends and family asked these questions. It's the people who had seen him before as a beggar. They passed him by hundreds of times on their way into the temple. This man was probably the lowest of the low. He probably was already an outcast. People looked on him with some sort of derision, viewed him as some sort of pathetic object for pity, but not for friendship, not for love, not for their care and for their compassion. And yet Jesus saw him, 
and Jesus condescended to help him. I don't want us to miss this. This man begins the chapter as a disenfranchised blind man, and he actually will end the chapter even more disenfranchised as far as the Jews are concerned. But he will be Christ by the end of this chapter, loved by him, cared for by him, considered a sheep of his flock. I want to share with you a quote from a sermon by the great preacher Charles Spurgeon on this particular text. He makes, I think, an interesting observation that we shouldn't miss. He says this, if this blind man must necessarily sit and beg at the gate of the temple, then those who frequent the temple must just slip by as if they were as blind as he. Crowds pass by and take no notice of him. Now listen to how Spurgeon applies this insight. Is not that the way with the multitude today? If you are in trouble, if you are suffering heartbreak, do they not ignore you and go their way to their farm and to their merchandise, though you lie down and starve? It is not so with Jesus. He has a quick eye to see the blind beggar if he sees nothing else. If he is not enraptured with the massive stones and the beautiful architecture of the temple, yet he fixes his eyes upon a sightless mendicant at the temple gate. And I love this. He is all eyes, all ears, all heart, all hands where misery is present. My master is made of tenderness. He melts with love. Oh, true souls who love him, copy him in this, and always let your hearts be touched with a fellow feeling for the suffering and the sinning. In another place, Spurgeon says this, to me, a follower of Jesus means a friend of man. A Christian is a philanthropist by profession and generous by force of grace. Wide as the reign of sorrow is the stretch of his love. And where he cannot help, he pities still. This man, this blind beggar, was probably without a friend in the world. There should have been a Christian who was his friend. There should have been a Christ follower who was his friend. Let us take care, brothers and sisters, in our lives as disciples of Christ, to do better than these Jews who ignored the suffering around them and even added to their reproach. This man was entirely without friends to come to his defense and support, and Christ came to his aid. Let's imitate our master in this. Now I want you to notice verses 13 and following. We're still in the third plot movement. The Pharisees begin interrogating this man. I want you to notice that as the narrative unfolds, this man comes to greater and greater faith and commitment and allegiance to Jesus as time goes on, even as the hostility of the Pharisees grows as well. So let's pick up in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees this man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes, and all God's people rolled their eyes, right? Here we go again. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Apparently, this theological debate ensues. Uh, Jesus had violated the Pharisaical understanding of the Sabbath. He had made mud on the Sabbath, which was a form of work. I think it's one of the reasons why this is the chosen method by which he heals this man. 
And he apparently violated the Pharisaical understanding of the Sabbath. And so the conclusion must be, even though we have before us a man who was healed from blindness and given his sight, he can't be from God because he's a sinner. We cannot believe that this is the Christ, that this is the Son of God. And then there was the other side of the debate, which is looking at this man who was formerly blind, who now sees, and they say, look, can someone do this if they're not sent from God? Sort of reverse engineer and conclude he must not be a sinner. Look at what he's doing. That's the debate that's taking place. Verse 17, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. Now, that's true. It's a true statement that he's making. He must and will confess a whole lot more than this before the chapter is done. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Go ahead and ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Now, I suspect his parents actually knew who it was who had healed their son. But they know if they give credit to Jesus, they could be kicked out of the synagogue, so they just keep their mouths shut. What's more, they basically throw their son under the bus. They say, look, I'm washing my hands of this. They know the consequences of testifying on behalf of their son, and they just step away from him. Ask him. He's, he's of age. Uh, he can bear testimony for himself. You don't need us to really be involved in this. They step back from their son and essentially abandon him. I suspect that a long time ago, these parents abandoned their son. I think this was probably in keeping with a pattern. Why is he begging at the temple gate? Why is he all alone, friendless, and without anybody to support and defend him, blind from birth, having to beg for his bread? Where are his parents? Where are his friends? Where are those people who might support a man in this situation? Perhaps this man had only ever been seen as a liability to his parents. He was a liability when he was blind, and he's a liability now that he sees. His parents are unbelieving, and they will not defend their son. And if he's going to jeopardize their standing with the Pharisees, then they will not identify with him, and they will not defend him. Let's read on in verse 24. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. That phrase, give glory to God, would have been like a a Hebrew expression, basically saying, tell the truth. Like, Like, just own up and say what we know to be true. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. Now, I don't believe that this man is actually speculating that Jesus might have been a sinner. I don't think he's suggesting, well, he could have been a sinner, maybe not, really don't know. I think what he's saying is you're missing the point. 
Debating over whether this man's a sinner is not the point. A a man who was formerly blind, who now sees, is standing before you, and you've not dealt with that. This evidence is standing before you. What is your explanation for the fact that I was blind, now I see? Debating over the sin of this man is not the point. That's why he says, "I, I don't know about that question, but one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And with those words... The man born blind gives voice to millions of testimonies after him. Witness here the power of a personal testimony, of real, supernatural, incontrovertible change in the life of a sinner. This man was less experienced and less educated than everyone in the room, and yet he has the trump card. He has eyes that see. He knows and they all know that he was blind and now he sees that is irrefutable. Regardless of whatever theological arguments might be surrounding the situation, the evidence before them is a blind man who sees. And he says, in essence, I may not know all the theological arguments you all know, and I may not have much learning, but I know as truly as I can know anything in the world that I was blind. And now I see. We who are Christians can understand that, right? We're those people who once were blind but now see. I can't answer every question you might ask me, but with simplicity and humility, I can say from experience one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And until you can refute that, I will not relinquish my attachment to Jesus Christ. Do you view yourself, brother or sister, as the object of the supernatural miracle-working power of Jesus? As the healing of a man born blind is a miracle, so is saving faith in the heart of everyone who truly believes. Like, you realize this, right? Your faith The fact that you, in your heart, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, your faith itself is a miracle. Like your faith doesn't just produce a miracle, your faith is a miracle. The fact that you can see with the eyes of the heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is as much the product, the fruit of the supernatural miracle working of the Lord Jesus as this man receiving his sight in John chapter 9. Now observe what's going to happen here in the verses that ensue. His parents are gone, and he is now being threatened with expulsion from the synagogue, which means basically you don't exist anymore as far as the Jews are concerned. You're an outcast, you're an exile, you're a nobody. But you have to see it was this testimony, this experience with Christ, this radical change in his condition having been blind and now seeing, that made him willing to lose all and to suffer loss for Jesus. So let's pick up in verse 26. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple. The word there for revile could be translated abuse. 
the Pharisees meant this appellation, this title, disciple of Jesus, to be a term of abuse to this man. Those of us who are in Christ know there's no higher privilege than bearing that name, disciple of Jesus. And this man will come to see that. Verse 28, and they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. This is always the issue for the Pharisees, right? We have Abraham as our father. We are disciples of Moses. We are the experienced religionists. We are the ones who obey the law. We don't need this man. Don't suggest to us that we have to become disciples of anyone else. We have Moses as our father. We have Abraham as our father. We don't need this man. And so often John is exposing that it does not really matter what your attachment to Abraham or to Jacob or to Moses is. What matters is what you think about Jesus and how you are connected to him. Verse 30, the man answered, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Very simple, very basic logic. And yet this had to be revealed to this man, shown to this man. Not only can this man see with physical eyes, he has been enabled to see with spiritual eyes. That this man, this Jesus, this prophet must be from God. Somehow he's able to see it so clearly. Now this is why I say that the man's faith grows as the chapter goes on. Back in verse 11, he just refers to Jesus as a man. Uh, it, It was the man Jesus who did this. A little ways on in verse 17, he says, he is a prophet. Now in verse 33, he is saying that he must be of God or sent from God. And there's even more to come. As the opposition to this man and his faith increases, his attachment to Jesus becomes stronger. At the same time, the hostility of the Pharisees increases as well. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Now that's a big deal. He's out of the synagogue now. He's even more disenfranchised now than he was as a blind beggar at the temple gate. He's put out of the synagogue. Where's he going to go? What's he going to do? What kind of life could this man hope to have now that he's been put out of the synagogue? His friends are nowhere to be found. His parents have basically abandoned him. And now the Pharisees have put him outside the religious establishment. Where's he going to go? This leads to the fourth plot movement. Jesus finds the man and reveals himself to him. Jesus finds the man and reveals himself to him. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. We don't know where Jesus is during this whole interrogation process, but Jesus hears now that this man has been cast out. And it says, and having found him, having found him, The word that's used here is the same word that's used in Luke chapter 15, 
to describe how Jesus leaves the 99 so that he may find the one lost sheep. That's the word that's used here. Jesus finds this outcast, this man so disenfranchised. Like a lost sheep, the shepherd comes and finds him. No one else wanted him, not his friends, not his parents, not the Jews, but Jesus wanted him. Jesus would have him, and he would bear him on his shoulders like a little lamb back to the fold. It's no coincidence, as I said earlier, that the next chapter is on the good shepherd who stands in contrast to the imposters and the thieves and the wolves. Jesus is the good shepherd, and he will have this man as part of his flock. And though he may not have any friends, and though he may have been abandoned by parents, and though he may have been put out of the synagogue, he is a lost sheep if there ever was one, and Jesus finds him. And listen, it's all worth it. It's all worth it if Jesus finds you. So moving on in the text, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Verse 36. He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. This is reminiscent of the account in John 4 of the woman at the well. We know that when Messiah comes, he will reveal all things. Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. Another outcast. Another individual who had been disenfranchised and put outside the community. And Jesus reveals himself to her. This is in keeping with a pattern. Jesus delights in revealing himself and drawing near to those who are humble, those who recognize their need, those who recognize their sin and humbly look to God, look to Christ for grace. Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And then the man's all in. He believes, and with gladness and with great joy. He worships Jesus. Fifth and final plot movement. You could wish the chapter just ended there, but it doesn't. Fifth plot movement, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Now these verses are actually a lot harder to interpret than they first appear. And the reason they're so hard to interpret is because Jesus and the Pharisees are not working with the same definitions of this word blind or what it means to see, and they're not always clearly distinguished from one another. I think the best way, the best way to arrive at Jesus' meaning here, to understand what it is he's trying to communicate in these last couple of verses, is to ask two questions of the text. Two questions. First, we should ask, who is the one who ends up blind in the end? Who is the one who ends up blind? And then secondly, what is the nature of true damning blindness? Who's the one who ends up blind after all is said and done? And what is the nature of that 
blindness. So let's ask the first question. Who ends up blind in the end? Is it people like the man born blind who's kicked out of the synagogue? Or is it the Pharisees who are disciples of Moses and who do not believe in Jesus? Look again at the text, verse 39. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. I think we should read that as might end up seeing. Uh, The result is that they will see. They will end up being the ones who see. And those who see may become or be rendered or end up blind. Verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? I understand them to be asking not, are we those who started off blind and ended up seeing? Rather, they're asking, is it your ruling on us that we are the ones who will be judged or rendered or end up being blind? Verse 41, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, by which I think he means if you had started out in a posture of blindness and looked to me for sight, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, your starting posture is, we see. We're disciples of Moses. We have Abraham as our father. We don't need anything from this man, Jesus. Now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. So I understand verse 41 to mean, if you had approached me as those who are blind, needing sight, like a blind beggar in need of something, you would be rendered the ones who now truly see and walk in the light. But because your posture is not one of humble blindness looking to Christ for sight, and because your posture is, we see, we don't need any help, I render you blind and guilty. Now, that gets at the second question. What is real blindness? What is the nature of true, damning blindness? Well, let me tell you what it is not. It is not the person who comes humbly to Jesus like a blind beggar, saying, Lord, help me to see. I'm blind and lost and sick and broken, and I need fixing. These eyes don't see as they were meant to see. Come, Lord Jesus, light of the world, and shine on me. Be the light of life to me. Help me follow you that I may have the light of life. Jesus smiles on that kind of blindness. Jesus shines into that kind of darkness. Jesus heals another man in his earthly ministry who was blind, not from birth, we don't think. In Luke chapter 18, there's a man by the wayside, the crowds are sort of crowding him out, and he shouts at the top of his lungs, Jesus, the son of David, have mercy on me. That cry for help, that plea for mercy from a blind man stops Jesus in his tracks. Remember what Spurgeon said, the Lord Jesus is all ears, all hands, all heart where need is present. The Lord Jesus' ears are attuned to that kind of a cry, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And he goes immediately and he heals the man. He says, your faith has made you well. Recover your sight. People like that who humbly look to Jesus for their sight 
will not end up blind in the end. Theirs is not damning blindness. They will be given eyes to see, and they will have the light of life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who humbly look to Jesus for their good and for their salvation. They will be the ones who see. But we still haven't answered the question, right? What is the nature of true damning blindness? And the answer is this. It is those who, like the Pharisees, say, we already see. We don't need Jesus. We're sons of Abraham. We're disciples of Moses. We have the law. We're fine. We are the righteous. We are the ones who see. Don't come to me talking about my sin and my failure and my need. I'm fine. I don't need anything from Jesus. That is the very essence of spiritual blindness, according to this text. It's very much like what Jesus says in another passage in Luke, chapter 5, verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you waste your time with blind beggars? Verse 31, and Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's a deep irony in the passage, right? Those who recognize their sickness end up well. Those who know they are not righteous end up being righteous. But those who say that they are well are the ones who are truly sick. And the ones who say they are righteous, they are the sinners who will end up being condemned. Jesus says, you think you're fine? Think you're well? Think you see? Okay. You don't think you have any need of me? I'm not here for you then. I've come for blind beggars and for needy, sick, and broken people who know their need of a Savior. And my ears are attuned to the cry of those sinners who call out to Jesus for mercy and for compassion and for forgiveness and for healing. Two points of application and then we'll be done, very briefly. Number one, Jesus always, 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 Jesus always responds to blind beggars who look to him in faith. There has never been a time in the history of the world when someone in sincerity has cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, when the Lord himself has not responded and granted sight, granted healing, granted forgiveness. Jesus always responds to blind beggars who look to him in faith. That's good news. You don't have to see anything to come to Jesus. You don't have to know your Torah. You don't have to memorize the catechism. You don't have to know the answer to every theological argument and every theological question. You don't have to have some intellectual pedigree. You come in the most humble posture as a blind beggar who literally cannot see the next step in front of him, 
crying out to Jesus, Lord, give me my sight. Forgive me my sins. Deliver me from my darkness. And he will always respond to that cry of faith. The only fitness that the Lord Jesus requires is that you know your need of him. You have to take the posture of those who say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. And the beauty of the gospel, the great privilege of my life as a preacher of it, is to tell you he will always respond to you. He'll always hear that cry, and he'll deliver you. He'll save you. He'll forgive you. Second implication or application. Blind beggars can become disciples. Blind beggars can become disciples. This man got his sight at the start of the chapter. And as he faces increasing opposition, his attachment to Christ grows stronger. And he increasingly identifies himself as a follower of the Lord Jesus. Those who once were blind can be given their sight and then become followers of Jesus himself such that they can endure every cost, that they can endure hardship, that they can endure trial. If you have Jesus as the light of life, you will not walk in darkness, the Lord says. And if you have him as your shepherd, it doesn't matter if the imposters consider you an outcast. It doesn't matter if the wolves abandon you or try to devour you. It doesn't matter if your parents don't love you. It doesn't matter if you don't have a long list of friends. If you have Jesus as the light of life and if you are his disciple, you can withstand any opposition. You can withstand any abuse because you have him and he has you. That makes it all worth it. There are people here in this room, I know your stories, and you've suffered great loss for your attachment to Jesus. You have parents who don't want to speak to you about it. You have parents who, as long as you're talking about Jesus, I don't want to be in the same room with that person. There are communities that you were a part of back when you were blind that would no longer claim you as one of their adherents would no longer identify with you. Listen, blind beggars who become Jesus' disciples, they're equipped with limitless resources in Christ to withstand that kind of opposition, that kind of abandonment. It's amazing to see the transformation that takes place in this man. He, he, he actually had more from a worldly standpoint when he was a blind beggar. And getting his sight doesn't help his status at all. Loses his parents, loses his standing in the synagogue, but he had Jesus. The great shepherd found him. And with gladness, he worshiped the Lord Jesus. Those of you who are followers of Christ, who once were blind beggars, I urge you, look to him, trust him, and cling to him. It's all worth it if you have Jesus as the light of life. And if you have him as the good shepherd. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we say to you, out of our bondage, 
sorrow and night. Jesus, we come. Jesus, we come. Into thy freedom, gladness, and light. Jesus, we come to thee. Out of our sickness, into thy health. Out of our wanting, and into thy wealth. Out of our sin, and into thyself, Jesus, we come to thee. Amen.
It's our privilege this morning to celebrate and to remember the Lord's death together as a church. I want to call to our attention from the book of Colossians. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Colossians in chapter 2, and he reminds them of some very, very, very important things and connects them to, some, to an amazing theological truth. In chapter 2, verse 13, he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he... Jesus, set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. If you are, if you are like the blind man who came to see and you have a story to tell, that story revolves around what Jesus has done for you. And it's not physical blindness that we're here. That's not our testimony. That, that's a big deal. But that blind man, he died. But he's not dead anymore. His spirit's with Christ. In the final day, he will be risen from the dead with Christ when Christ returns. This morning, we have an opportunity to celebrate together what God has done for us in the death of his son. This is not intended to be a time of, of mourning or a time of sorrow, but it is good for us to contemplate the cost of our salvation. It's good to contemplate what it required for God to be just in forgiving us of our sins. God does not just forgive sins that's not how it happens. It doesn't work that way. Sins have to be paid for. Something had to be done for him to be a just God. He would not have been a just God had he just forgiven evil. But he is a just God because Christ did die for our sins. And he was a perfect sacrifice. And it's our privilege together as believers, as those who have publicly testified, who follow Christ, who have been baptized in the, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to come and partake of this particular ceremony. This is an ordinance that Christ himself provided for his church. And in this time, may we make good use of this time. I want to commend to your heart and your soul to use this time to seek the Lord, to pray, to consider what, what he did for you, for us, and may we fellowship together in this opportunity. Brad, will you please open this time and pray and thank the Lord for what he's done.
If you have been baptized and you are following Christ, we invite you to partake of this with us. So if you make your way orderly through this, we will all celebrate this together.
The scriptures teach us that on the night that the Lord was betrayed, he took bread in the presence of his disciples, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said to them, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Please stand as we sing.
Amen. You are dismissed.